Father, now as we come to your word, as we do every Wednesday, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, and O oh Father, that you would challenge us. God, in a, in, 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 a, in a bold way, we ask that you would wake us up, that you would revive us, that you would unsettle us in our comfort that we would recognize the unstoppable power of the gospel and the fact that the church will never, ever be thwarted. It will never be destroyed. It can never be hindered. What an awesome thing to be a part of this church. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for the, the triumph and the victory that we have in Christ our Lord. We pray that you would encourage, that you would exhort us, that you would teach us, that you would allow us to implement the things we hear to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And, oh, I have so much that I want to, not only 28 chapters worth in the book of Acts that I want to share tonight. But in between sermon series, there's so many, like one sermon that I want to get out there, but I, just tonight, and then we'll go to Psalms next week. Um, but I, I thought finishing the book of Mark and dealing with the Great Commission last week, this would be an appropriate follow-up to that, uh, hopefully to encourage you, hopefully to revive your own heart through the Word of God. Because as you see in the title there, right in front of you on the outline, I want to teach tonight on the unfailing gospel and the unstoppable church. And my one verse that I want to deal with for a little bit, and then we're going to survey the entire book of Acts, fasten your seatbelt, is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Follow with me as I read Acts 1 8. Jesus said, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Christian, what you and I need to hear crystal clear tonight is that you believe in the unfailing gospel. You believe in the unfailing gospel, and you are part of the unstoppable church. Get that for a moment. The unstoppable church. And how we learn about this and how we know that is from the book of Acts. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it really could appropriately and maybe more rightly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because this is a book all about the Holy Spirit of God who is working by and with the preaching of the Word of God amidst a lot of opposition to advance the gospel across the world. And that's not the power of a man. It's not the power of the apostles. It's not the power of a group. It's not the power of an organization. It's the power of God that certifies that the gospel will never fail. The book of Acts is the account of the work of the Holy Spirit who works in and through his church. 
Now, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us what Jesus did in his human body on this earth, well, the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continues to do by the Spirit's power as the Word of God goes forth across the world. This is a book that ought to light your soul on fire. You read the book and you ought to like jump out of your chair and say, let me just go preach on the rooftops to everybody. (laughs) Acts is a preaching book. There are no less than 24 messages in the book of Acts. And what we read from Acts 1 all the way to Acts 28 is that the gospel cannot fail and the church cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. Now, in your outline... You see right there, Acts 1.8. I just want to walk through this verse with you in a couple of ways and then survey the rest of the book with you. Jesus is about to ascend after the resurrection and go to heaven. But just before he ascends in giving this great commission, Jesus said in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And then he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria... And the end of the earth. Look in your outline first. I want you to know, Christian, the power you have. The power you have. Now, it probably hasn't been very long before you recently had the thought, boy, I just feel weak. I don't, I don't feel like I can do this. There, there's so many commands, so many exhortations. The world is so big. There's so many unbelievers out there. Jesus said, you will receive power in his great commission. He said that. Notice the sureness of the power. Notice the word will. You will receive power. You will receive power. And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is totally opposite than worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says reach deep inside of yourself and be who you want to be and find your inner man and find your real you and... That's nothing but weakness. Biblically, where you get power is entirely outside of you in the Spirit of God. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So Ephesians 1 tells us you have the resurrection power of the Spirit of God at work in you as you live the Christian life. That is sufficient power. That is a great power. That is a mighty power. Christian, to live your Christian life, to live an obedient life, to live a life of witness, whether it's in your home, with your children, at your work, in your community, in your neighborhood, in our nation, or on the street corner, or at the abortion mill, or in the city square somewhere, or with a spouse, or a child, or whatever. You have all the power you need in the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But not just the power you have. Notice number two, the proclaimers that you are. Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. I love that. You and I have what we need, just like the apostles did. We have what we need to be proclaimers. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the message. We have the truth. We have the word. We have a lot of lost souls. We are equipped. I I, I say sometimes 
You, you and I can always be trained more in sharing the gospel. But if you are a true Christian, you really know enough to open your mouth and speak. If God has saved you, you know enough to share that with another. You will be my witnesses. And notice the, 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 you are summoned. It is a command of God. You shall be, you will be my witnesses. And it's not your own witness. You don't need to craft your own message. You are a testifier of Christ. If we opened up our Greek Bibles here that Luke wrote in this manuscript, we would see that this is a little phrase that says, you are the witnesses possessed by me. We are owned and possessed by Christ. We have one message and it's Christ and him crucified. It's not ourselves. I have a testimony and you have a testimony, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ and him crucified. We are commissioned. We are commissioned, Acts 1, verse 8. And so, not only, number one, do we have the power, number two, the proclaimers that you are, but now, number three, the places that you go. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. He starts right there in their home, Jerusalem. And then you go out a little bit to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You might say, in your neighborhood, in your family, your neighborhood, and then in the St. Louis region, and then in America, and then all across the world. You will be my witnesses all across the world. When we come to the book of Acts, we, we come to an astonishingly amazing book. It is a historical book because chapters 1 and 2 tell us about the founding of the church. And then chapters 3 all the way to the end talk about the expansion of the church. Now, in your outline there, I think I put this there. It might be on the next page. But when you and I are looking at the outline of this book, we need to recognize the expansion of the church in verses 3 to 7. Look with me there in your outline at the top of page 2. When the church grows, there is external opposition. But don't be surprised when the world hates us. When governing authorities come after us, when lawsuits come our way, when threats come our way, we ought not to be surprised that happened in Acts 3 and 4. But then there's internal compromise, chapter 5, there was lying in the church. And then chapters 5, toward the end of the chapter, there's intensified opposition, even behind bars as well. Chapter 6, even internal conflict. So when God is at work in growing the church, guess what? The evil one is often mightily at work as well. More on that in a little bit. We need to remember, though, before we jump into the survey of the book, the book of Acts reminds us of a couple of key truths that you and I know. Jesus said, I will build my church, right? He'll build his church. So it's not Jeff's responsibility to come up with something new. It's not your responsibility to come up with something clever. Jesus will build his church. And then we read in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, that we are one. We are united with this Christ. So he will build his church. We are united with Christ. And then the Bible says that we are fellow workers with God. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. 
Jesus has all power. He gives us all power. He builds his church as we serve him and as we proclaim him. But the book of Acts is so helpful and so important because there are three dangers that the book of Acts reminds us that we have to be on guard from. Three dangers, maybe many more, but just three to simplify it. Number one, prejudice. The Jewish believers in the early the early time had a really difficult, a really difficult mindset with Gentiles being brought in. What do you mean? They're different. They're unclean. Judging with limited information based upon externals. The early Jewish believers found it hard to let the Gentiles in. They're not like us. How can they be with us? Almost like a spirit of partiality and favoritism that James 2 talks about. We have to guard from that as well, from prejudice. Number two, we have to guard from personal agendas. This might be convicting for you as it was for me. Because often we can have agendas, and they're good agendas, and they're personal agendas, but sometimes that can take the priority over God and His Word and the growth of the church. We have to guard against the danger of prejudice, the danger of personal agenda. And then third, the third danger, it's all through the book of Acts, is the danger of pride. Ananias and Sapphira within the church, Agrippa and Felix from governing authorities, and the Jewish leaders who were jealous. Just a few examples of pride and how that can be so deadly as the church grows and spreads. I want to do something with you. I want to not preach for the rest of the time, but I want to tell you the story of the book of Acts. I, I, want, I want to walk through all 28 chapters. I'm going to zoom in at a couple of places and then really fly over many places. Because what I want you to do is not just read a chapter in your quiet time and then, then the next day read another chapter. And it can just kind of seem disjointed and that's good to do. But let's remember, this is one story of how God, the Holy Spirit, works through weak people who proclaim the unstoppable gospel. And guess what? People are converted. But can I say something else? When the gospel spreads, guess what? Riots often come with that as well. Difficulty, dangers, threat. Persecution, imprisonment, beatings, it comes with the advance of the gospel. So, all right, fasten your seatbelt. We're going to go through the whole book of Acts here in the next few minutes together. <laughs> Acts 1, Jesus, after rising from the dead, he ascends into heaven. And then the apostles meet in the upper room and they pray and they ask the Lord to replace Judas. They need a new apostle. One who saw the baptism of Jesus and one who was personally appointed. That's what an apostle was. So they replaced Judas with Matthias. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches. It's the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. The Spirit of God falls through the preaching of the Word. God saves. The church is birthed. The church blossoms. I mean, the church explodes and it grows. 3,000 people converted in one sermon. 3,000. Whitfield said, Peter may have been a better preacher than me, but he didn't have a better gospel than me. 
you and I have the same gospel. Let's preach it with boldness. And our God can save. Notice in Acts 2 verse 42, the the apostles were continually devoting themselves, the believers were, to four things. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early church met, and they were devoted to praying, they were devoted to preaching, they were devoted to hospitality and breaking bread, and they were devoted to fellowship as well. It's an amazing account in chapter 2 where you've got gospel preaching and then you've got supernatural conviction over sin and then you've got the biblical response to repent and believe and then you've got an exhortation to holiness. You've got to be saved from this perverse generation. Wow. God saves 3,000. Now, in Acts 3 through 6, when God builds his church, God... God does an awesome work. But, but, when God is at work, Satan is at work. When God is actively at work building his church, Satan is also actively at work trying to hinder the work in the church. Externally, internally, fiercely, aggressively. In Acts chapter 4, there are threats from the outside. The Jewish leaders arrest Peter and John. In Acts 5, there are threats from the inside of the church. Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much money they gave. They actually were struck dead in church. That's one way to purify the church, I guess. At the end of Acts 5, there's another threat from behind prison bars. They take Peter and they put him in jail. In Acts 6, there's threats from the busy ministry and the complaints of believers. I feel overlooked threats. But the church is growing, and the church is growing, and the church is growing. In Acts chapter 7, we come to learn of a man named Stephen. Stephen is falsely accused at the end of chapter 6. I mean, get this, falsely accused. And in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? He could have very simply said, no. But he goes on to preach the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. It's like a history of Israel. The longest sermon. Now, here's one lesson we learn. I'm going to mention it, but I can't dwell on it. One thing the book of Acts teaches is when you are asked questions, the early Christians often are not content with giving a yes or no answer. Whatever question is asked, they turn it into a gospel opportunity. Stephen did it. He lost his life, but he did it. Peter did it. Paul did it. Philip did it. Are these things so? Stephen doesn't defend himself. He preaches the gospel. And then at the end of chapter 7, in verse 51 to 53, nine times in the original Greek text, Stephen does a you. You are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised. You are doing what your unbelieving fathers have done. You have persecuted the prophets. You have murdered the righteous one. You, I mean, he's going after them. Because that's what preaching is. You explain the word and then you apply it to the heart. Stephen did it. The response of the unbelieving Jewish leaders, they gnashed their teeth, they rushed at him, they stoned him to death, and he died. Chapter 8 tells us that that happened with a man named Saul. 
right there. In Acts chapter 8, even though Saul began a persecution, God then raised up a man named Philip to send him to Samaria. In Acts 8, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch and Philip preaches Jesus to him from Isaiah chapter 53. It's an amazing account. The Gentile hears the word, he believes the word, he's baptized, and then get this, the Holy Spirit miraculously takes Philip from one location to another city. That's pretty cool street preaching right there. (laughs) Chapter 9. We come back to a young man named Saul. He gave hearty approval to the killing of Stephen earlier, but now in chapter 9, we have the amazing power and conversion of the most unlikely sinner. Never forget, worst rebels can be washed by grace. Meet Saul. Verses 1 and 2, before conversion... He was a murderer. He got letters from the high priest to go from Jerusalem all the way up to Damascus in Syria so that he could find Christians and put them in jail, which meant death. Verses 3 to 9, when he's entering Damascus, God interrupts his journey with a bright light at noontime. God knocks him off his high horse, literally, falls to the ground. Saul is converted. Verses 10 to 30, we have after his conversion, his growth, his baptism, his preaching. And then we read that the church throughout all Judea is being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord. What an amazing account in chapter 9. Well, now, now in chapters 10 and 11, oh, wow. The plan of God is not just for Jerusalem, not just for Judea, Samaria. It even includes, from the Jewish perspective, dirty, unclean, non-kosher, non-Sabbath-keeping Gentiles. Chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius. Amazing account in Acts 10 all the way to chapter 11, verse 18, where we read about how God's gospel plan includes the nations and a man named Cornelius. Amazing, astonishing. I want you to look with me at chapter 11. Look at verse 19. 11, verse 19. So, then those who were scattered because of the persecution... You think, how could any good come out of that? Well, look at 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. They spoke the word to no one except the Jews alone, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. That's repentance and faith. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Do you see how God uses persecution and the scattering for the purpose of God to advance the gospel? I mean, who, who would have thought that going to prison, being scattered, 
being exiled out of your home could actually bring about good. But it did in chapter 11. You see, God is always at work, working with His Word as it is proclaimed for the glory of the Son and for the growth of the church. Well, Acts 12, check this out. Acts 12, we read in chapter 12, verse 1, that Herod the king, this is Herod Agrippa I, he laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death. That's one of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. This is John, the leader of the early Jerusalem church, put to death, one of the earliest apostles killed. He was killed because of his testimony. He was a bold preacher in Jerusalem. He was one of the leaders. Well, Herod, verse 3, finds Peter, puts him in jail. Guess what? That means he's going to probably die too. Verse 5. Look at Acts 12.5. But Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Notice Peter is put in jail. He's surely going to be brought out and be put to death by Herod. And yet the church gathers. The church prays. The church has passion. The church prioritizes prayer. And then God answers. I mean, the rest of Acts chapter 12 is the miraculous release of Peter from jail. The gates open automatically and so on, and Peter has to come to himself, and he goes to Rhoda's house, and she opens the door. Hey, we're having a prayer meeting, praying that you'll be released. And he says, I am released, and she doesn't believe it. Desperate praying by the church, urgent praying by the church, begging God, specific prayers, many lessons for us in Acts 12, verse 5. But now Acts 13. This is, the, this is the main division point of the book of Acts. Acts 13 is now leaving Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now going to the ends of the earth. You know, the gospel always advances with power. Within a decade of the crucifixion of Jesus, the village culture of Palestine, you know, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Nazareth, Chorazin, those cities, that was kind of left behind for the main focus on the Greco-Roman city centers like Rome, Corinth, Philippi, Athens, Ephesus, Antioch. We want to go to where the millions are. And that became the dominant environment of the Christian movement and the ministry in the book of Acts. So we might think the mantra is to the city, go to the people. We don't just meet for church and stay here. We go to the people. We go to the market. We go to the city center. Actually, Paul on his journeys, he goes to the synagogue first. And then he will always go to the market, the city square, and preach Jesus who died, Jesus who was raised, and Jesus who is Lord. One thing that I love about the book of Acts is that the church began in Jerusalem, but it quickly spread to other cities. The book of Acts has no less than 40 cities mentioned in this wonderful book. On Paul's third missionary journey, Paul could write in Romans 15, 19, From Jerusalem, round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I mean, could you and I say that? You know, starting from my hometown through all the region of my continent, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What, what, what a guy. 
No, it's not, not what a guy. What a God working through the man by the power of the Spirit. So Acts 13 and 14, we have the first missionary journey. In Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, let me teach you about missions for just one moment. Look at verse 2. While they, the church, were ministering to the Lord and fasting. So the church is meeting together and fasting. The Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. That's missionary work. Notice they don't just send the 17-year-old who says, I want to give my life to God. They send their best to the mission field. When they fast, verse 3, how do they make decisions? They fast, they pray, they lay their hands on them, and they sent them away. They go, they preach, they're qualified, they're leaders. At the end of chapter 14, it's the end of the missionary journey. Acts chapter 14, verse 27, When they arrived and gathered the church back together, they began to report all that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. So on the journey, they go to Cyprus, they go to Antioch and Pisidia, they go to Iconium, they go to Lystra and Derby. If you know 2 Timothy 3, Paul was stoned there and left for dead. He got up actually and entered the city again and kept preaching. That left a mark on him, literally. But, but spiritually and mentally, because at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 3, God rescued him out of all of those dangers, including the ones on his first missionary journey. But meanwhile, something is happening back in Jerusalem. Look at Acts 15. We call it the Jerusalem Council. Now, here's what's going on. There's false teachers, even in the early church, that are coming in. They're creeping in, saying, you believe in Jesus? That's fine. But you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep the law in order to be saved. Well, verses 6 to 11, the leaders, I mean, the apostles... They, they got to take action. I mean, you, you've got a you've got a gospel that's now bringing in works. They're bold. They're faithful. They're biblical. They're courageous. The apostles speak up. They exhort. They give truth. Why? Because all biblical leaders must hold fast to the faithful word to exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. Jude 3 says you got to contend earnestly for the faith. You got to fight for it. 2 Timothy says you got to guard the gospel. Galatians 1 says if anybody preaches a different gospel, let him be eternally accursed. Well, they clarify that. They preserve the gospel by grace. Well, then we turn to Acts chapter 16. In these three chapters, Acts 16, 17, and 18, we have the second missionary journey. And you can sort of put in your mind, this is the region of Greece. The region of Greece. You know, Paul said, I, I know people are dying. People are suffering. People are pagans. They're worshiping anything and everything. But Paul couldn't go to sleep until he preached the gospel to them. He was an animal after souls. He cared. He cared. He went. He labored. He suffered. So he goes to Philippi. And then he goes to Thessalonica. And then he goes to Berea. And then he goes to Athens. He's mocked in Athens. And then he goes to Corinth. And he spends a year and a half in the city of Corinth. That's the main stop on the second journey is the city of Corinth. 
In Acts chapter 17, I think about this wonderful chapter in three ways around three cities. In Thessalonica, they resisted the word. In Berea, they received the word. And then in Athens, they ridiculed the word. Often three responses. Many people resist, some people receive, and a lot of people ridicule. That happened to Paul. Well, then we come to the third missionary journey, Acts 18 to 20. And Paul goes to Asia Minor. It's modern day Turkey, but Asia Minor of old. And his first stop is the city of Ephesus. It's the main stop. For three years, he's there. And then he goes to Greece, and he goes to Troas, and then he goes to Miletus before he goes on to Jerusalem. But in Acts 20, in Acts chapter 20, before Paul leaves this journey, sailing back for Jerusalem, he has some departing words for some Ephesian elders at a little beach village called Miletus. Acts 20 tells them, godly men, godly leaders, godly pastors, you must be a humble servant of the Lord. You must be an intentional teacher of the gospel. You must be a sacrificial minister of Jesus. You better be a diligent guard of God's flock. And you have to be a personal discipler of believers. That's Paul's sermon to the elders in Acts chapter 20. Paul's missionary journey comes to a close in Acts chapter 21. As Paul boards a ship from Miletus and he sails and arrives in Jerusalem ultimately. And what I love about Acts 21, as Paul arrives in Jerusalem, finally comes to the temple. You got to see this. Look at Acts 21 verse 27. This is amazing. I mean, the man is an animal. He's hungry for souls. He's a preacher of the gospel. And Acts 21 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing Paul in the temple, they began to stir up the crowd and lay their hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the guy who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. That's a wrong suspicion. Look at verse 31. What happens? 31, they want to kill him. In verse 32, they're beating Paul. In verse 33, they bind him with chains. And then in verse 34, there's an uproar. I mean, there is literally loud screaming and shouting in the temple because Paul is here. In verse 35, Paul literally has to be carried away because of the violent mob. I mean, literally carried by soldiers. In verse 36, people are shouting uncontrollably away with him. Hello, the preaching of the gospel. <laughs> Behold the opposition. Behold the opposition. Well, Acts 22, Paul is being carried away and he says, hold on, can I make a defense? Acts 22, he makes a public open air defense on the stairs. It's his own testimony. In Acts 23, he's brought before the Sanhedrin of Jewish leaders and God tells him, you, Paul, you're hated by many. There's a riot in the temple. People are wanting to kill you. You're agitating the whole city. Guess what God says? You know, they don't like it. Why don't you just tone it down? No, he doesn't say that. God says, 
be strong, keep witnessing, you're going to make it to Rome. That's what God says in verse 11. Take courage, you're going to make it to Rome. Well, in verse 20, chapter 23, there's a conspiracy to kill Paul. It actually is uncovered, amazingly, through a young child. So, Paul is taken to the port city. What a cool city this must have been. Caesarea Maritima. Wonderful city on the cool Mediterranean ocean front. And Paul is brought before Felix. Paul, before the most powerful governor. Guess what he preaches on? Righteousness. You don't have it. Self-control. You don't have it. And the judgment to come, you're going to be there. Felix was scared. Verse 25. And then Felix, in one of the most tragic verses in all of the Bible, Felix says, when I find time, I'll summon you again. The danger of delay. Felix was a terrible man, officially, Personally, and certainly spiritually as well. He procrastinated. So then Paul was left in jail for two years. Acts 25, Paul's brought before another governor named Festus. And then in Acts 26, Paul is finally on defense before another Herod, Herod Agrippa II. Oh, wow. Now in Acts chapter 28, Paul knows that he is before a man who... Pardon me, in Acts 26, I said 28. In Acts 26, Paul is before Herod Agrippa. And he says in verse 28, uh, he says that in a short time, you, Paul, are going to persuade me to become a Christian. I like to call Herod Agrippa the almost Christian. He went to hell as an almost Christian. He went to hell as someone who heard the gospel but didn't believe. Don't be one of those. One of the most impactful books for me was by a Puritan, Matthew Mead, where he gave 20 ways that you could be an almost Christian. As a warning, don't be one. Don't be an almost Christian. Herod was an almost Christian. Well, Acts 27. Paul is is finally, with many other prisoners, sent on a boat, and they go to Rome. And with a huge shipwreck, and Paul shows his leadership on the shipwreck, they finally arrive on an island called Malta. He's there for three months. And then in Acts 28, verse 11, they finally arrive in Rome, and Paul is a relentless force. I mean, he is an unstoppable machine. He is preaching the gospel. He is preaching Christ crucified. He is preaching Christ raised. I mean, here's a man who is an unstoppable herald. He's an urgent ambassador. He's a loud agitator. He's a Christ-exalting preacher. Romans fifteen twenty. here's what Paul said. I aspire to preach the gospel... Not where Christ was already named. So that they who had no news of him shall see. And those who have never heard, they shall understand. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted people to know of Christ. Paul was greedy for souls. He loved men enough to beg them to come to Christ. He wasn't ashamed to beg 
Acts 28, verse 16, Paul is under house arrest. He's there for two years. At the very end of Acts 28, you see it there, two little verses, verses 30 and 31. He's there for two years in jail. He's going to write four letters from these two-year imprisonment. You know them. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We call them the imprisonment or the prison epistles of Paul. He wrote these at the end of Acts when he was in Rome for two years. Well, with all of that... While in jail, Paul expected to be released, like he said in Philippians 1. He evidently had his friend Timothy with him in jail, Philippians 1 and Colossians 1 tells us, along with John Mark, Luke, Epaphras, and Demas. Get this. While Paul is in Rome, he happens to meet a guy. He's a young man who stole a bunch of money from Philemon. And his name is Onesimus. How would you like to meet Paul, having just stolen a lot of money? Paul's going to rebuke you. He's going to give the gospel. The Lord mercifully saves Onesimus, according to the book of Philemon. Well, then Epaphroditus brought a gift from the Philippian church to Paul. Almost died, bringing the money to him. And then Tychicus was the mailman for Paul during this time, who delivered Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. It's an amazing book, which shows you the unfailing gospel and the unstoppable church. Why are you and I here? Because of the book of Acts. The gospel spread to people, to people, to people, to you. And through you to more people. What a great God. The hero of Acts is not Peter and Paul. It's not Silas or Barnabas. It's not any person. The hero of Acts is God. God working with his word through weak people. That's why John Calvin said, Acts is a vast treasure. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Christian, you ought to live in the book of Acts. Acts 17 The unbelievers said about those Christians, here they are. They have upset the world and they've come here also. And then Acts 19 verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily. The word of the Lord was growing mightily. So before we pray, what I want to remind you of is in this wonderful book of Acts, God hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. You and I are weak people, just like the people in Acts. But when God sends his word forth, it is an unstoppable message with divine power. So the Lord said, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So what's your Jerusalem? What's your Judea and Samaria? How can you and I play a part to the ends of the earth? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, we are working together with God. We are working together with God. Saying now is the acceptable time. Today is the day 
of salvation. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. May we be faithful to serve him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. The book of Acts, the wonderful testimony and powerful gospel that we read about in these wonderful pages. Thank you that you give power through your word to your people as the word of God is proclaimed. May you receive glory in Jesus' name.